Good morning. Today the scripture reading is from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, it is great to be with all of you this morning. Thank you, Madeline, for reading. And thank you, Jason, for leading us in that prayer. This morning, uh, if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead, digital or paper, and turn to Matthew chapter 4 that Madeline just read. We're going to see today that... God has designed it that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And after this past week of really hard things that we've seen transpire and come out into the light all over the country, we need something to satiate us. We need something to fill us, something we can hold on to, and we have it. We have it in this book and in the one who became flesh and lived this book out in Jesus so I want to show you from the temptation of Jesus, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, a few things this morning I want us to walk through. I want us to walk through the context of the temptation. Let us understand like why this passage had to take place. I want us to understand Jesus' perspective on the scriptures. And I want us to understand also that the Bible is about God. And lastly, how Satan attacks the scriptures. I want you to know there's uh, uh, two great resources because when you talk about the sufficiency of the scriptures, when you talk about Jesus being the word of God made flesh, it is a big topic, a large subject, and there's no way to cover that in a sermon or 10 sermons. But there are some great resources, and I just want to point out two of them to you. So if you want um, a very readable and good book on the, the authority of Scripture and also what Jesus himself thought of Scripture, I would recommend this book, Unbreakable, by Andrew Wilson. It's a great little book, and it's like a 50-minute audiobook. So there's that. You can't go wrong with those. Don't think, don't think that when I know what you mean, when I'm like, did you read that book? And you were like, read? Mm, I have heard it, though. Yes, um, I do that. And then Standing on the Rock, a little bit more um, intellectual book, a little, bit, uh, a little bit weightier, a little more technical language, but nonetheless a great book by James Montgomery Boyce. And so Standing on the Rock and Unbreakable, two really good resources on 
this idea that we're going to look at today, these four ideas from the temptation of Jesus. In that book, Unbreakable, there's a quote at the very beginning of it from Justin Taylor, and he says this, when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture, we cannot go wrong if we hold to the perspective of Jesus. Have you ever wondered if Jesus were to walk into our church today and pick up one of our Bibles, what he would think about what he saw? Would he support it? Would he refute it? Would he change it? The perspective of Jesus on the scriptures are really, really vital to us as believers, followers of Christ, to know how to follow Christ. And so we're going to see today an emphasis that Jesus has on the scriptures and his perspective. So let's begin. Let's look at the context. Jesus, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so what we see in the first verses is a few different things. One, Jesus is led by the Spirit. That's important. Two, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's important. And three, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tried. And then you got to ask the big question, why? Why would the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted before Jesus begins his ministry? So this passage, Matthew 4, takes place right before all the famous stories that you know of Jesus. When you think about the miracles, when you think about uh, Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane and praying three times to his Father, when you think about the cross and the resurrection, this story is the precursor to all of those things. So it's necessary for Jesus to go through this moment to get to that moment. And so why? Why is he led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by Satan? I think, number one, Jesus is living out the Scriptures, physically living out the scriptures. He is being Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He is picturing the, the, the Israelites in their journey through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is physically living out the scriptures. This is no Bible drill. This is no like, okay, quote this verse, okay, quote this verse, okay, quote, okay, here's your badge, here's your check. This is, he is living physically out the scriptures here. He is going first to the wilderness. And this is, by the way, the fact that he's living out the scriptures is a big hint for us on his view, his perspective of the scriptures. But why the wilderness? Why would the Spirit of God lead anybody into the wilderness? Let me turn your attention back, back to the famous romantic book of Hosea. God says something in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and through 16, that I think will help us understand why would the Spirit of God lead Jesus or any of us into a wilderness? God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness, and there I will speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband." The Lord doesn't speak to us in want. I mean, in plenty. He speaks to us 
and want. It's not Memorial Day when you're at the barbecue and it's the party of parties and like you're just having a great time. It's usually not in those moments that we hear the Lord's voice the loudest. And God needs us to hear his voice. And so oftentimes, he will allure us. He will bring us into the wilderness that he might speak tenderly to us. There's that that famous line that C.S. Lewis has in The Problem of Pain where he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the Spirit of God allures the Son of God into the wilderness. And he's tempted and tested there. And that's why we have the famous verse in Hebrews 4.15 that says that, Because of moments like this, we have a high priest who can empathize with us in all of our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be tempted and tested. He knows what it's like to be brought into the wilderness. He was not this untouched, uh, unhindered man of God walking the earth, God in the flesh. He was the son of God who was tempted and tested in every way like we are, Hebrews 4.15. But the difference is he passed every test. He went through the wilderness flawlessly. And that's why we have such great confidence, one, in going to him and calling out to him because he can understand us. But two, we have such great confidence because it's not about how I did in the wilderness or how I did in the testing. It's about how he did in the wilderness and how he did in the testing. And he passed every test. Jesus is living the scriptures. He, he again, he's like Moses On Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, when you get the the Ten Commandments, he goes up on Mount Sinai, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he listens to get the Word of God to deliver to the people. Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, is communing with the Father in the wilderness, preparing to be the Word of God for the people. And also, he's doing a microcosm of what the Israelites did for those 40 years. He's in a wilderness and they were in a time of testing and trial for 40 years. And Jesus, for 40 days, is picturing them. So God brings us into the wilderness because he longs for us to be with him. And God uses the temptations of Satan to draw us to him for his glory and our good. And ultimately... Jesus shows us here that we have a high priest who can relate with us in every trial, in every temptation, and he passed every test. So then we have to ask, well, what does Jesus believe about the scriptures? And what does the temptation of Jesus show that he believes about the scriptures? Let's look at these next couple of verses. It says, and he was hungry at the end of verse 2. Then verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Right before Satan shows up in verse 3, we see that Jesus is hungry. And you're saying, Well, 
yes, if you fast for 40 days and 40 nights, like reader insertion, duh, you're hungry. But this actually means a little bit more. Do you know of anyone? Just show of hands. It's like home team weekend, you know, like where it's holiday weekend and we're here. So, so show of hands. You don't have to say like you did it. But do you know of anyone who has fasted for 40 days? Anybody? I see a few hands. Okay. I see those. Hey, man, we know some people that have fasted for 40 days. Uh, that's incredible. And so you, if, if it was you, um, then that's amazing. And if it was someone, it doesn't matter. Someone else, that's amazing. Today, if, you, if you're going to fast for 40 days, and people do this, you go to your doctor and you ask he, him or her like, hey, doc, what do I... What do I do? I'm going to go on this spiritual fast for 40 days. And they're like, okay, here's your diet of juices and, and water. And this is your consumption you need. And these are the things you need to watch out for. And you're going to come back in every two weeks and get a checkup. And we're going to see how you're doing. Uh, Jesus, being the great physician, had all that taken care of. And so he, he goes and he fasts for 40 days. And they say that when you fast for a long period of time, there are hunger pains at the beginning. But then your body hits reset and the hunger pains go away. And when the hunger pains come back much, much later in the fast, it means that your body is breaking down. And so what we see in the temptation of Jesus is that Satan shows up as the physical body of Jesus begins to break down. Now, all you, you would think a man would need at that point is some food, and he's back on track but Jesus' perspective on the scriptures is stronger than the need for food. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. If Satan showed up to you this afternoon and, uh, and tempted you with something, I hope that there would be a verse on your lips. Maybe uh, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know, there's a bunch of verses that come to mind, but maybe you'll have one. I hope you would have one, but I bet it wouldn't be Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. That's the word on the lips of Jesus. That's what he's quoting here. So if you've got your Bible with you, just flip back over real quick and look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is speaking. And he says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Jesus didn't just mentally and emotionally know the text. He was living the text, and he knew the word of God would sustain him even more than food. But you don't know that the word of God will sustain you any more than, more than food until you get to a place where there's a lack of bread. And you don't get to a place where there's a lack of bread until God brings you into a wilderness. It is a sweet moment when you know the word of God. And in particular, Jesus, the word made flesh, is the only thing that will satisfy your hunger. 
And this is where Jesus is. Jesus, what we see about his perspective in the scriptures is obviously he affirms the Old Testament. Just know that. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. It's good for him, and so it's good for us. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8 here. When he's on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22. In Matthew 22, when he gives the great commandment to love God and love our neighbor, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. And so if we want to have the same perspective on the scriptures as Jesus did, we need to affirm the Old Testament. We need to know that God has revealed himself to us in the Old Testament. He quotes from every scroll of the Hebrews. He quotes from the scroll of the Torah. He quotes from the scroll of the prophets. He quotes from the scroll of the writings. Jesus affirms the Old Testament over and over again. Basically, every time he opens his mouth... He's affirming, he's speaking the scriptures, he believes them, he lives them, he prays them. But not only that, Jesus affirms the New Testament that is to come. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus basically says, you're going to get more special revelation from me after I'm gone. He says in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is giving a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit's going to come and the Holy Spirit's going to reveal himself to some folks and remind those folks of what Jesus said and people are going to record that and they're going to have what we call now the New Testament. So Jesus affirms this whole book that we have. That's his perspective on the scriptures is that they are good and right for us all. And they always draw us to him. And obviously, this whole book is manifest in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And tabernacled or dwelt among us. Jesus shows us that this book is a light unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he ultimately is the lamp unto my feet and the lamp unto my path. And let me just say, every one of us, myself included, we all have some light that we are walking by. We all have something that we are viewing to see the steps in front of us. How time-tested, how proven is the light you are using to guide your path? We all have some voice that we're listening to, some voice that is speaking to us. How time-tested, how time-proven is the voice that guides you? Because Jesus, the rock of ages, the word who became flesh, lived by the scriptures, according to the scriptures, all the way to the cross. In the garden, he said, not my will be done, but your will. It wasn't that Jesus had some special word from God that we had never heard before that meant God's will was for him to go to the cross. Jesus knew the Old Testament, and the Old Testament pointed over and over again that the will of God was that the Son of God would go to the cross. He knew the text. He prayed the text. He lived the text. 
There's a side note here. And the side note is, is bigger than we have time for in this sermon or maybe two more sermons. But the side note is that every word of God matters. If you're a, a Bible marker, I have it marked in here in, uh, in, verse, in verse 4 when he's quote, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. The two words, every word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every word in this book is good and right and of the Lord. This idea is called inerrancy. And we get the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture from verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 that says that the Word of God is breathed out. We often use the word the inspiration of the Bible. I don't like the word inspiration, though, because, uh, I mean, it's a good word, but in our modern context, if I say the Bible's inspired, you can say, oh, yeah, like I was inspired to go to the swimming pool yesterday. Or like I was inspired when Heather asked me to do some things to do them. Like I was inspired to pick up some pine cones in the yard to make it look better. Like inspired in our modern context is very feely. But God breathed is very intentional. The Lord is not a space filler. He does not need to fill space with extra words. Every word has weight and gravitas. Jesus said, not the smallest iota, jot, or tittle would leave the law. Everything counts. Everything is weighty because it is the ruach in Hebrew, the breath, or the pneuma in Greek, the breath of God. And he has breathed out his words and they've been recorded. And every word of God is there to point us to him. Yesterday, I was performing a wedding and uh, I get to perform a lot of weddings and it was wonderful. And I was standing next to the groom and uh, the, the doors, it was in a church, which is kind of novel these days. Um, and so it wasn't in a barn, um, but, uh, but we're, <laughs> we were in this church and the doors were closed. You know, all the bridesmaids and groomsmen had come in, they're all lined up, the doors close and the music changes and so does his breathing. Well, I have, I'm like, oh, we got a nervous groom. All right, and so his breathing is like, like these deep heaves, you know, and he's like, I'm like, all right, here we go, buddy. You just stay upright. And, uh, and so, but, but he was so excited to see his bride come in. Like he was just like, open the doors. And when the doors flung open, there she was and the tear, his tears, you know, he, he, he's crying and it's just this wonderful moment. And then I get to charge them in front of everyone. I charge the wife, and I charge the husband, and I use Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and the first little part is to the wife, and then the whole bulk of the rest of it is to the husband. And one of the things that says of the husband, the Christian husband, is that he's supposed to present his wife, his bride, to the Lord without spot or blemish or any such thing. And how does he do that? By washing her with the water of the word. Jesus is the ultimate husband. And he wants to cover us with this word. And he wants us to be covered by this word. And the Christian husband is to be so deep in this book that as his wife is around him, she can't help but get splashed by the word of God. And every word counts. 
But what happens when we stop thinking every word of the Bible counts, the Ruach of God, the pneuma of God, we start thinking like a lot of people in the past have thought. It was a few years ago, right after Christmas, we took a family trip and I was like, we were about to nerd out on this trip. We, uh, my parents invited Heather and I to go with them to historic Williamsburg. And I was like, sounds sleepy, let's do it. And I had never been to historic Williamsburg. I didn't know what I was missing out on because when we got there, it was amazing. If you, who's been? Who's been to historic? All right, there we go. I love it. It's a great place. Like you go and you, I mean, it's living history. It's incredible. And so we're having this great time eating at all the places, hearing all the people talk. And you know, you can't get them out of character. You're like, I'm going to see if I can get old uh, George Washington to, to actually be Frank. Um, and like he's, he is Frank, but he won't be Frank. He's just George. Uh, and so we're like having, you know, just a great time. And then we meet Thomas Jefferson. And I realized that Thomas Jefferson had his own Bible. Now, I didn't know anything about this. I wish I had known. I wish I'd been a little more prepared. But I was like, I would love to buy a copy of that because you can buy everything at Historic Williamsburg. And they were selling Thomas Jefferson Bibles. And then I realized what he did. You see, Thomas Jefferson, he didn't believe every word was good and every word was right. He literally took a razor and cut out the words in red that he preferred. Leaving behind all the miracles, leaving behind the crucifixion, the resurrection, and he collected a bunch of sayings of Jesus and hand-bound them, and it became the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And before you laugh, because it is kind of funny, I think you and I do the same thing. If we're not careful, we cherry pick what we like and what aligns with our lives and the rest we leave and we question. We've got to be believers that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The words that affirm and the words that cut. Every word. And then the confrontation continues on in verse 5, and it says that the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, man, shall not live. I'm sorry, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, Satan begins to quote the Bible. He quotes Psalm 91. I'm in a group with some young adults, uh, a little cohort, Heather and I are, and we memorized Psalm 91. And when I first read this, you know, I think, oh, well, Jesus, uh, clearly Satan here is not going to quote Psalm 91 correctly, but he does. Satan quotes the Bible word for word accurately. The enemy knows the Bible. But the big difference between the way the enemy uses the Bible and the way Jesus uses the Bible, the enemy makes the Bible all about you. Jesus flips it on its head by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16 and says, no, the word of God is all about God. The Bible is about God. I think for so long I had read so many books and heard so many sermons and sang so many songs about God being for me that I just began to believe that if God is for me, then the Bible is about me. 
And so I'd read Daniel and I would try to be him. Or I would read David and I would try to be him. Or I would look at Goliath and I would think, oh, that's so-and-so. And that's not right. None of that's right. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is about God. And Satan uses Psalm 91 and puts Jesus as the center. He puts, he puts us as the center and he says, oh, God will command his angels concerning you. And Jesus says, look, you're not supposed to put God to the test. And if I put myself in the center, I'm putting God to the test. And that's sinful. There's so much relief and peace that comes when I read this book and see that I'm not the main character. But he is. He's the one who lived perfect. He's the one that went to the cross. He's the one this whole book points towards. I'm just a person who gets to be a part of his story by the grace of God. And it's so freeing when I realize what Jesus shows us here, that the Bible is about God and not about me. I have a homework assignment for you. Two chapters I want you to read. And I want you to read it with God as the center and not yourself. The first one is the famous Psalm 23. Read Psalm 23. It's just a few short verses. First time, you can do this one twice. The first time, read it where you're kind of the center. The second time, I want you to read it, and I want you to focus on how amazing the shepherd is and how unbelievable it is that he would pay attention to any of us sheep. Then, I want you to read Isaiah 40. The most famous verse in Isaiah 40 is the last verse about how if we wait on God, we will mount up on wings like eagles and we will soar. It's a great verse. It's probably the weakest verse in the chapter. If you read Isaiah 40 with God being the center, you'll get to verse 10 and you'll see, behold the Lord who comes in might. And by the time you get to verse 31, you won't be looking for strength to mount up on wings like eagle, but you'll be looking for the one who gives strength. The scripture is much better when we see it as it's supposed to be with God at the center. And lastly, what we see in this passage is that Satan continues and will continue to attack the scriptures with an age-old question. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All the way back in Genesis, you remember everything was going great for two chapters. And then you get to chapter 3. And here comes the serpent. The serpent uses the same tactic today as he did in Matthew 4, as he did in Genesis 3. The serpent comes to us. And he says, did God really say that? Does God really mean that? Does he mean that for you and for now? And in those weak moments, it's so easy to start thinking, I mean, he, I think he said that. Maybe he said that. Maybe it doesn't mean that now. Maybe not for me. He twists the word and the wisdom of God. And Jesus, once again, comes back and says, no, 
You worship God only, and only he will you serve. You think about how many Christian hot-button issues there are. Sex, marriage, money, church, family, evangelism, God being creator of all. It's not that the Bible doesn't address these. It's not because these things aren't clear. No. What happens is when the scriptures confront my closely held beliefs, Satan often attacks with the line, did God actually say, does he really mean that for you and for now? Knowing Jesus means knowing and loving and doing what he says. Let me read to you again from John chapter 14, such a rich chapter. John 14, 21, Jesus said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I'll love him and I'll manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said to him, listen to me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. It was enough for Jesus to stand on the word. Let it be enough for us to stand on the word. And when you stand on the word of God, the Bible, and it is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, it is not to make you righteous. It is the blood of Jesus that makes you righteous. But it is a sign so often when you are convicted by the word of God and you repent, you turn, and you go a different direction, it is a sign according to John 14 that the Holy Spirit is in you and you are a child of God. A true child of God hears the word of God and responds because the spirit of God communes with the heart of God, communes with the word of God, and we adjust our lives not to be righteous, but to say thank you for what the only righteous one has done for us. I want you to know, the word of God, it doesn't say all the specifics about everything, but it does say something about everything. And so as you consume this book and it becomes a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, you're going to have moments where you hear something and you're going to have to hold it up to this book and see if it passes the test of the word of God. About a year and a half ago, I was folding some clothes on a Friday because I'm off on Fridays, been off on Fridays for a long time. I was folding some clothes while Heather was at school teaching. And I thought I heard in my head just this idea of, Thomas, you have finished the ministry that I called you to at the church you're serving in. I was like, what is that? Is that the, Lord, is that you talking to me? And so I got down on my knees and I prayed and I said, Lord, is that you? Or is that just like lunch talking? What was that? And, and then I just, I thought I would kind of forget about it. But as the day went on, I started thinking about the scriptures, just wondering, okay, I know enough to know that if I have a thought that I think could be from the Lord, I need to see if it holds up to the scriptures. Because the spirit of God, if he was talking to me, always cooperates with the word of God. You'll never hear something in your head or in your heart and say it's of God if you can't line it up with something in this book. And different passages started to come to mind. Abraham being called to move. Paul moving from one town to another doing ministry. 
Jesus going from one place to another. I started thinking, okay, maybe that's the Lord. I'm not sure. Heather got home from school. Again, I thought I would have forgotten about it by the time she got home from school. I told her, I said, Heather, I don't, can't tell if this is the Lord or not. That's what I think I heard. I'm trying to line it up with the scriptures. She said, I think it could be God. She said, let's pray. We began to pray. And then we began to hold it up to the scriptures together. Could this be the Lord through his spirit, cooperating with his word, asking us to make a change? We held it up to the Lord, held it up to the scriptures for a few days. And a few days later, I didn't go turn my resume in. I didn't, uh, I didn't just like walk off and leave. But we started to think maybe the Lord is confirming what I thought I heard in my head through his word. A few days later, I got a phone call. It was Jason Dees. And he said, Tom, we think it's time for you to come on staff with us. I was like, could it be that clear? And so for another couple of weeks, we went to the word over and over again, went to the Lord in prayer, and we really sensed the Lord does not speak specifically about everything, but he does speak about all things. And I really believe by the end of that period when we made the decision to come here, if we had seen a contradiction in the scriptures, we would have stood on the word of God I would have said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And the reason we have that model is because of our Savior, Jesus, and the way he stood on the word. He lived the word. He prayed the word. He was the word. So as we land the plane today, Jesus uses the wilderness for his glory and our good. Everybody has a light illuminating the path they're traveling. Is yours trustworthy and time proven like the word of God is? Satan will always try to twist the word of God. But as the word of God has been offered up today, I think the question for all of us is, will we eat of it? By the grace of God, we come to Jesus, take him at his word and follow him because he is the word. So may we first follow him, the word made flesh, and then follow him through the word, the Bible, by the grace, peace, and power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much as you've revealed yourself in this book to us. Lord, the Bible is not Father, Son, Holy Bible. The Bible is a revelation of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It points us to you. Lord, may we be drawn to you. May you move us by your word to adjust our lives to say thank you as we follow you on this journey. Lord, give us the grace to trust you as you've revealed yourself in this book. And Lord, I thank you that when we fail, we have Jesus who withstood not just this test of Satan, but every test all the way to the cross. Lord, it is by his grace and his blood that our sins are washed away. And we thank you that we see that in this book. Father, move in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.